Eco Money on Money FM 89.3. 2023 may have seen a spotlight cast on controversy around ESG investing. Greenwashing and confusing terminology may have punched a dent into ESG's credibility. But could this give way to greater clarity around language goals and intentions in the year ahead? Well, MSCI ESG Research's Sustainability and Climate Trends report for 2024 is hot off the press. It identifies some of the key themes to look out for in the year ahead, from manpower to AI and nature-based investing. To find out more, we're joined now by Yu Shahara, who is the Executive Director, MSCI ESG and Climate Research. Yu, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks very much for having me. The Copernicus Climate Research Report, it was just published 2023, the hottest year on record. From the report that MSCI has just issued, though, you cover what this might mean for the evolving labor market. Maybe you can share with us what that might mean for the labor market in the year ahead. Yeah, so it's a great question. And this is one of the topics we dive into directly in our recent Trends to Watch report. And the report introduces a trend on the increasing risks associated with global warming and extreme weather events on different facets of the economy, including the labor market. So in the report, MSCI analysts introduce an example of a possible risk scenario wherein a U.S.-based logistics worker could potentially be 50% less productive in 2050 than compared to 2020 if global temperatures continue to rise. And although that's one pretty specific example, I think it's quite representative of the bigger picture issue here with regards to how employers and employees may need to start considering the implications of global warming as it pertains to labor management practices. And I think I'd also like to you know, highlight that this particular example is out of the US, but these risks are likely to be just as, if not more relevant for the ASEAN region. And then further MSCI analysis illustrated that beyond just logistics, there are several economic activities where the labor force could face you know, high risk exposure to rising temperatures. So we're talking industries like agriculture and forestry, construction, mining, or even manufacturing, which, you know, can all be seen as, you know, pretty critical industries for the region. And so ultimately, as we potentially see, you know, more impacts from global warming, different industries all around the world may increasingly need to address such climate risks with new forms of labor productivity and risk management practices as it pertains to rising temperatures. Okay, so what are some of the examples or some of the things that corporates can do to better prepare themselves for this? Certainly. I mean, we can talk about labor. When I talk about labor management practices, we can talk about, you know, workers' conditions. We can talk about, you know, extra benefits that companies might need to pay as well as sort of maintaining, you know, proper, you know, basic things like air conditioning and factories, you know, these sorts of labor management practices, which I think, you know, may seem kind of standard, but as global temperatures continue to rise, you know, these things are going to become critically, you know, more important all around the world. Yeah. And speaking of the labor market, many people are still working flexibly from home. And this was an interesting statistic that your report highlighted that the rise in the average cost of U.S. homeowner insurance between 2001 and 2020 was up to, I think, 140%. So, you know, we're talking about 
what this means for homeowners, the housing market, insurers, and how you see this trend playing out in the coming year as well. Because, you know, if the labor market is hit, what impact is this also going to have on the housing market? Yeah. So I was particularly shocked at these numbers as well when I saw them. But I think it's statistics like this that illustrate that not only is global warming a long-term environmental and social risk, but that the resulting extreme weather events can can also have you know very immediate financial ramifications for the economy today, which includes obviously the housing market, and then we're talking homeowners as well as insurers. So extreme weather events such as flooding, cyclones, wildfires, the occurrence of these things are you know increasing around the world, and this has posed a very real challenge for homeowners and would-be home buyers in these high-risk areas, who obviously need to you know start factoring in a higher likelihood of their homes facing such risks you know before buying or selling. And then from the other side of the picture, we also see the home insurers who are quickly needing to reprice the premiums and policies to account for the increasing likelihood of damages from these extreme weather events. But all of this basically means that the cost to insure homes, particularly in these vulnerable areas, is going to go up, which mm-hmm. in addition to an inflationary economy is you know, only further going to pinch consumer wallets. Now, having said that, there, there are some ways to you know, plug the gaps here, you know, including things like policy assistance. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the entire economy, whether it's the homeowners, the governments, insurance companies, basically all of the invested stakeholders here in the housing market that need to reprice these risks. And again, I'd highlight, although you know, in the MSCI report, we talked about the US housing market, mm. I'd stress that the same issue should particularly hit home for the ASEAN region where you know, acute climate hazards such as flooding, typhoons, drought, or even things like rising sea levels, you know, these could all have a significant impact on communities and the housing market in the region. Okay, I want to move on now to more of the investment focused areas of your report. And, you know, on EcoMoney, we've we've spoken quite a bit about greenwashing. And I I liked this particular area of the report where you highlight it's not what a company says in the report, it's where they say it that investors should be aware. We've spoken a lot about phrasing and different terminologies used when it comes to greenwashing. What should investors be aware of? Because you also say that investors need to look at the small print for companies when they're looking to reduce their or report their emissions. What do we need to keep an eye out for? Yeah, so I think there are two sides of the coin to understanding this discussion. On one side, you know, as we highlight in the report, is the increasing number of markets and jurisdictions that are adopting, you know, corporate sustainability disclosure, either in the form of regulations or requirements. And to that end, we highlighted in the report the internet the introduction of the International Sustainability Standards Boards, or the ISSB Disclosure Standards, having been introduced last year. And this is particularly important because the ISSB standards have the potential to standardize corporate sustainability disclosures, particularly as they relate to things like climate risks around the world. And to that end, we're seeing many major markets around the world adopt these ISSB standards, or at least you know, announce plans to implement all ISSB-aligned disclosures in different markets, including Singapore from 2025. But like you mentioned, there's there's a flip side to this, and that is when you start introducing rules or regulations, is the unfortunate ability, I guess, for participants to start finding loopholes. And MSCI analysis in particular highlighted examples of what our analysts called orphaned emissions for the utilities sector. And so what are they? These orphaned emissions are, in essence, companies undergoing financial engineering to manipulate emissions reporting you know, by moving polluting assets off of their own balance sheets into joint ventures, subsidiaries or even switching to location-based emissions accounting, some utilities companies have been able to quote-unquote remove up to 95% Mm -hmm. of their potential emissions footprint. But there's obviously no real-world decarbonization impact there. It's carbon accounting engineering. 
So I think that's the risk we talk about, we're talking about here, or as we refer to in the report, the fine print. On one hand, increasing regulations and requirements on corporate disclosures you know, has the obvious benefit to significantly improve transparency for all stakeholders. But at the same time, because the rules have kind of been laid out, it becomes just as important not only to understand the rules, but also understand the potential limitations around them as well. And that kind of flows nicely into the next question I had for you. And that was, you know, the trend that you see when it comes to the private asset market, because you also state that, you know, what listed assets are more transparent and face higher public scrutiny. Private markets are pretty opaque. And I think the report also states that the obscurity is fueled concerns that dirty assets divested from public markets may have also ended up in private asset portfolios. Yeah, the earlier example I just spoke about in companies sort of divesting these high-emitting high assets into financial structures with less transparency requirements, you know, it may have made it sound as if the private markets might be becoming sort of a, a, a hidden mm-hmm. closet for corporates and investors who are trying to improve their publicly disclosed data. But th- that's not necessarily the case. And it's increasingly becoming apparent as our ability to measure sort of the carbon intensity of private assets improves. And this is due in part to some increases in reported data from the private markets. But more importantly, it stems from the increasing use of improving estimation models that help more accurately assess private assets emission data. So using emission models based built off of publicly disclosed data from different industries, which I would remind you standards like the ISSB are only mm-hmm. likely to encourage more of, we're increasingly able to more accurately model and estimate private assets emissions data. And then by understanding the emissions footprint of private assets themselves, we can then more accurately measure the carbon intensity of private asset portfolios as well. So going into 2024, we're seeing a similar trend in both the public and the private market assets for general improvement of transparency, particularly as it relates to emissions footprints. And while the public markets will increasingly rely more and more on corporate disclosures, For private assets, again, while we do anticipate some increases in reported data, thanks to initiatives like the ESG Integrated Disclosure Project, we're ultimately talking about the use of estimation models that are going to be based on this more increase in publicly available data. And then investors will have better insights into private asset emissions, which not only might prevent some of those orphaned emissions we mentioned earlier, but in general should give private market investors better information on how their investments could be contributing to funding the low carbon transition. Lastly, I'd like to ask you in terms of some of the key trends you see when it comes to investing nature-based solutions. What are some of the trends we can expect in the year ahead? It's as Peter Drucker famously said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so to understand the links between financial risk and biodiversity impacts, it's first important to arrive at a common understanding of what the market means by biodiversity loss. And only then can we kind of attempt to really measure it. So for emissions and greenhouse gases, the common accepted measurement unit is carbon dioxide equivalents. But when we talk about biodiversity loss, it can come from land use, water use, and of course emissions. So finding a way to synthesize all of those impacts into a common unit would would go a long way towards understanding and measuring the biodiversity impact of different assets and investments. And so the task force of for nature-related financial disclosures of the TNFD framework, suggested a unit. It's called Potentially Disappeared Fraction of Species, or PDF. And it attempts to measure the risk of global species extinction as one unit of measurement for biodiversity impacts. But then when we start talking about PDF, calculating this unit isn't exactly straightforward either. So MSCI analysis illustrated one way to potentially measure PDF was to focus on a on ways a company may put pressure on the environment in specific locations. 
And we kind of measure this by aggregating the stresses arising from land use, water use, as well as emissions emitted in the region. So then based on MSCI's calculation of PDF, we found, you know, unsurprisingly that high emitting industries like utilities to be among, you know, the potential highest contributors to global species extinction. But then also, we're, we also think industries like consumer staples, and this includes agricultural product companies that use large areas of land for production, could also be heavy contributors. And again, these are industries which should hit home quite hard for the local markets in the ASEAN region. So as we move forward, through measuring biodiversity impacts through indicators such as PDF, we can start to more accurately measure a company's direct impact on biodiversity loss, as well as the ramifications on investment portfolios invested in such companies. That was Yu Ishihara, who's the Executive Director at MSCI ESG and Climate Research, speaking to us about the latest MSCI ESG Research Sustainability and Climate Trends Report. I'm Rachel Kelly, and you've been listening to Eco Money on Money FM 89.3.